Uh, I'm not sure if you uh, realize this in the song that we just sang, uh, came upon a midnight clear uh, in, in verse uh, number 93, the third verse, I think is just uh, telling of uh, what we, we see happening um, really in our world and how often we are, are focusing on the things in our lives, the things are falling apart. But that third stanza says, all ye beneath life's crushing load, whose forms are bending low, who toil along the climbing way with painful steps and slow. Look now, for glad and golden hours come swiftly on the wing. O rest beside the weary road and hear the angels sing. I think that often many of us go through those seasons, right? We feel that we are under life's crushing load. Uh, we feel uh, overwhelmed and burdened with things going on in our in our lives. And what we think about this Christmas season is that Christ came to alleviate those those burdens, to give us hope and to give us strength. And and yet even uh, we we know that that's why Christ came to to free us from our to, for our sin, to to give us hope for the future. And yet many of us today are under the, the crushing load and weight of this world. We're not in glory yet. And many of, of us today are dealing with trials and challenges. We think about when the book of Revelation was first penned, many of the church then was dealing with the same thing, probably to a greater degree than many of, of us, uh, dealing with persecution, ostracized from society, um, not knowing when the end will come, but pleading and begging the Lord that he would come and come in power, that he would give them rest and relief. Well, as we approach this text this morning, we have to remember that this is apocalyptic literature, uh, meaning that this is written for a, a very specific genre of, of writing to help us understand that which is going to come. Uh, apocalyptic literature uses symbolic language, can um, can often be obscure the meaning for someone who begins in the middle of the book. Uh, I'm not sure if you've ever kind of entered into a, uh, you know, a couple, probably about a year ago, I came back from a trip um, after going uh, away, and um, my wife was watching uh, a new show that I had never seen before, This Is Us. Many of you may have, have, have heard of it, and I came in the middle, and I didn't know what was going on. They kind of were in the present day, then they were in the past, and I had no idea what was happening. And you know what it is when you come in and start asking questions, someone usually just says, just, just, just be quiet. <laughs> I can't answer these questions now. Well, oftentimes when people kind of come into the book of Revelation, we have all this background knowledge, and we kind of don't really know the chrono chronology. Because in, 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 in apocalyptic literature, the chronology is not the most important thing in terms of the order of when things happen. There's so much symbolism and so many things that we don't always fully understand. So if you are here and you're just beginning this journey with us in the book of Revelation, uh, it may be confusing to follow the flow of the book. And even if you've been here since the beginning of our study, Revelation can seem daunting uh, because our culture is often very unfamiliar with apocalyptic literature, end-time literature. So it's not, only, uh, it's not always easy to understand what the book is talking about, so we need to understand the backstory of what is happening here from the Old Testament. Uh, so, as in movies, shows like This Is Us, when they kind of shift back and forth with chronology, uh, the, the, every flashback can kind of gain the viewer greater insight to the storyline and the character. For us, every prophecy of the Old Testament, every allusion in the text of Scripture in, in this text, alludes, helps us, gives us a greater understanding of this prophecy. The other challenge of Revelation is that it often uh, brings various interpretations. 
last week when I preached um, on the opening of the seals, in two commentaries, one would say the first seal is the Antichrist. Another commentary where the first seal is the coming of the gospel in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are two very different things, right? So when you come to a text like Revelation chapter 7, you're going to find that kind of, of difference. So I, I know that there's going to be disagreements, but we can all agree that this book was given to us so that we could know and love the one who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. So I pray that whatever I say today and every, everything that comes out of my mouth would help you grow in your love for and your service to the one who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. Let's walk through this text this morning. First uh, point, the setting. What is the setting of this story? So Revelation 6 through Revelation 16 tells us of the last days. As I taught last week, I, I believe the first five seals are open and unleashed on the earth after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ began uh, the last days. Uh, so seal 6 kind of begins the end of history. Now, Re Revelation 7 is one of three interludes that kind of appear in the book of Revelation. So it happens between verses the sixth seal and the seventh seal. Now, remember, when we're dealing with apocalyptic lit literature, we don't often know what the chronology happens. Sometimes things that are said in chapter 7 actually ha may have happened before um, chapter 6. Chronology is not read the same way as in, in, a, in a, a narrative, as we see in the, the Gospels. Let's look again at this text in verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing in the four corners of the earth, restraining the four winds of the earth, so that the wind could not continue to blow on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, holding the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to damage the land and the sea, saying, Do not damage the land or the sea or the trees until you have sealed the slaves of our God on their foreheads. So John provides his details in what he sees. He sees four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. Now remember, it's apocalyptic literature. John does not mean that the earth is flat and there's four uh, corners on the earth. It's, it's, a, it's a picture, meaning it covers the, uh, the entire earth. That God is going to send his judgment everywhere. So in chapter 6, God is unleashing his judgment. War, famine, disease, and death upon the earth. There was great devastation coming. And I think if you were to try to pin me down, I'd say Revelation chapter 7 actually occurs before the, sixth, the opening of the sixth seal. Now, if you're, if you're a first century believer, and you are ostracized, and you are persecuted, and, and you are kind of the, the scum of the society, and you, 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 you hear these coming judgments, death and destruction and, and disease, your first thought is going to be, well, what about us? How are we going to be able to be endure? How can we endure these, these trials? And if God knows our thoughts, our hearts, and provides an answer to the questions that we ask, even oftentimes before we ask them, He does not say that the judgment will not happen, but when the judgment comes, the people of God will be okay. The people of God will be sealed unto the Lord. Uh, the seal of God is a form of protection. 
as we saw this in the passage that Pastor Gary read in Ezekiel. So in chapter 8, Ezekiel was the list of abominations that the nations had committed. And, and there was a remnant in Israel that before God was going to send his judgment, he was going to seal or, or set apart a, a, a select few who did not um, go along with the abominations, but said, no, I want to, to live an uncompromised life. I want to live my life unto Yahweh. So in, in verses 3 and 4 of Ezekiel 9, it says, Now the glory of, of, of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub, in which it rested on the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed in linen, who had the writing case at his waist. And the Lord said to him, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark or a seal on the foreheads of men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. Now remember to the seven letters of the churches, there was always a select few who did not soil their garments, who did not bow to the, to the idols of the day. So he's trying to say here, before God is going to send his terrible judgment upon the earth, he's going to mark his people for himself, and they will be protected. Now that just because a saint is protected does not mean that they're going to escape the, the wrath of the beast. Now remember, when you read the Revelation, martyrs are looked at as heroes in the book of Revelation. We already saw this in chapter, uh, chapter 6 when, when God opened up the fifth, the Lamb opened up the fifth seal. We see that the martyrs were crying out for God to bring justice and the, the voice from heaven said, rest a little longer until the full number of the martyrs are going to come in. There are going to be more people who die for the faith. It doesn't mean that we are going to escape all the, the trials of this life, but what it does mean that we will not be lost. We will not be lost from God. We may lose our physical bodies, but we will never lose our souls. So before the wrath comes upon the earth, the people of God are reminded there is nothing, absolutely nothing that can snatch them from the Father's hand. They are sealed. They are protected. They are going to be robed in white robes, a sign of, of victory. Now, if you are a first century Christian, and you know this is coming, and you can almost experience this right now in the wrath that's coming upon the people, the intense persecution that they were facing, how much comfort would it have been for them to believe and to know that they're safe? That whatever happens in this life, they are safe. God is with them. So I guess the, 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 the present day application is, are you sealed? Are you sealed by God? Have you trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you turned from your sins? Pastor J.C. Ryle says the heart that has really tasted the grace of God will instinctively hate sin. Have you tasted Christ? Have you seen and, and, and believed that He is good? Well, then run from sin. How do you know that you are truly in the faith is if you obey the Lord Jesus Christ? This is a promise in the New Testament. In Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, speaking to the church, it says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and believed in him, when you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So when you believe in Christ, God has unleashed his Holy Spirit in your heart to to, to make you love the things of God and hate sin. 
That's a, that's a sign for us that we have been sealed. There is nothing that can ultimately harm you in this life if you are sealed unto God. Are you sealed? Well, the second point is, who are the sealed? The sealed. Who are these sealed 144,000 in Revelation 7? So let me put my cards right on the table. I believe that these sealed 144,000 are a, is a symbolic number that includes all the saints in the church of Jesus Christ throughout history. There it is. So before I give my reasons, let me just say this. There are many other godly, conservative, um, solid, incredibly intelligent theologians uh, that believe different than I do. They would say this is referring to uh, ethnic Israel. Uh, so I, I do believe personally there is going to be a large movement of, of God among ethnic Israel during the close of history, uh, as we see in Romans 11. But I believe here, John does not have ethnic Israel in mind, but the church here in Revelation 7. So I believe the number is, is, is symbolic because of how John has already used numbers in Revelation. The number seven is, is a picture of, of wholeness and completeness. Seven horns of the Lamb, seven eyes, seven spirits sent throughout the earth, seven seals, seven churches. There are twelve tribes of Israel and the, and the twelve apostles. We see that in the end of the book in terms of the, on the foundation and the walls. So John writes both of the New Jerusalem. And so here, he does. He, we see twelve, but not just twelve, but twelve square. One hundred and forty-four. Then multiplies that by a, a thousand to give you one hundred and forty-four thousand. It's this great number that shows the complete and whole multitude. Now there are reasons that I want to provide for you this morning of why I think this hundred and forty-four refers to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you're used to listening to sermons, this may seem a little intellectual. Or really, do we really have to know this? So it may seem kind of like a lecture. I don't want it to feel like a lecture, but I think that a lot of you guys have questions on this, so I want to share my, my reasons why I think one way, uh, why this is, and then make the application afterward of why that's important. First, first reason why I believe this is referring to the church is that the, the book is written to churches. It's written to the seven churches spread throughout Asia. Uh, John is trying to comfort the church in the rise of persecution. So therefore, I think it makes sense that he would remind them that as they face this coming persecution, that they are sealed by God. And they should know that they will conquer in the end. Second, if the number is symbolic, which I think it is, then the most natural reading is this is all the people of God. And we read in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 2, that Jesus broke down the wall of hostility and united the, the, the two people, the Jews and the Gentile, into the one people of God. Uh, the church is referred to as Israel, several places in the New Testament. Uh, Peter addresses his epistle to the twelve, to the elect exiles of the dispersion, a reference to Jews, but he's speaking to the church. Uh, the apostle James says the same thing to the, to the twelve tribes of Israel, yet he's speaking to the church. Both ethnic Jews and Gentiles are in the church. Third, John has already differentiated in this book the difference between ethnic Jews from spiritual Jews. So in Revelation 2.9 and Revelation 3.9, he shares how unbelieving ethnic Jews are not true Jews. You are not a true Jew by your ethnicity. You are a true Jew by what you believe about the coming Messiah. Revelation 1.7 and Revelation 5.10 uh, calls the church a kingdom of priests. The same thing that Peter does in, in uh, 2 Peter, or 1 Peter 2, 9 and, and 10. A promise that was given of Israel in Exodus chapter 19. 
The church here is called a kingdom of priests. The sealed in Ezekiel 9 refers to those ethnic Jews who, do not, who did not compromise and follow the world, but were a remnant who was faithful unto God. So what I'm, what I'm trying to show is that throughout history, there's always been ethnic Jews. But among those ethnic Jews, there's always been a remnant who have been true believers. So I think John here is most likely not referring to ethnic Israel, but those who are the remnant who have remained faithful to God by trusting in the promised messianic lamb who has come to take away the sins of the world. Now, I'm giving a lot of information here, so I'm going to post this whole entire thing online later so you can look at it, just kind of feel the flow of the argument here now. So fourth, fourth reason. Revelation 14, 1 through 3, makes another reference to the 144,000. Uh, and I think it's clear from that passage that it's, re it's referring to the whole church. So if you have your Bibles, just turn uh, to Revelation chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. It says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and the one with him, 144,000, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the, the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Those who have the name of God and the Lamb on their foreheads, I think you can even draw out an allusion to the letters to the church at Pergamum and, and Philadelphia. It's also referred to, referred to as all the redeemed of the earth. It seems like both reference, Revelation 14 speaking of the church, makes it more likely that Revelation chapter 7 is also referring to the same church as well. The fifth reason why I believe this is the church. The listing of the twelve tribes is also uh, un is, is, is unique. Um, there's a lot of different renderings of the twelve tribes throughout the scriptures. Um, this is a unique re rendering of the twelve tribes. So if you see in Revelation chapter 7, it begins, verse 4, And I heard at the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. It begins with Judah. Why? Well, just a couple chapters ago, we saw that uh, John saw the, the lion of the tribe of Judah, who was a lamb. It begins with the followers of the lamb. Also, we, we don't see in this list is the tribe of, of Dan. He's not mentioned here. Uh, many think that the tribe uh, of uh, the Antichrist would come from the tribe of Dan. In Genesis 49:17, it says, Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heel so the rider falls back. Dan, throughout the history of Israel, was known for um, a center of idolatry. So it's, 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 it's John trying to say this does not include Dan who, who worshipped false idols, but this is the pure church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think it's also important to note that um, there's 12 tribes of Israel. As of right now, 10 have been lost. Uh, when... Um, the northern ten tribes of Israel, they intermarried with Gentiles, and they were judged for that idolatry. Uh, they were lost from the pages of history. So when they were lost, there was no more rendering of the true Israel, but only Judah, 
the, uh, the southern kingdom. Now, one could say that they, uh, they left the northern kingdom and they migrated, a true remnant migrated from the northern kingdom to the southern kingdom, but we can still say that the ten tribes are lost. Six, and finally, uh, I think John uses a literary technique to show that two things are the same. So, in Revelation chapter 5, it says that I, I, I heard the, the elder say to John, Weep no more, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. So we heard, and then the very next verse it says, And I saw the lamb. The lamb was the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David. They're one and the same thing. I think of the same thing we can read here. So in, in verse 4 it says, I heard the number sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And look at verse 9. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. So he heard, and then he saw a great multitude. It seems like those things are, are connected. So I think there's good reason to believe that this 144,000 is the church. But as always, you should be like the Bereans in Acts chapter 17 and study to make show yourself approved, to see what you believe. Uh, we can get bogged down here in the specifics of the 144, but we must remember the context. But look at the end of chapter 6. I think chapter 6 and chapter 7 are really wedded together. Look at the end of chapter 6, when it speaks of the, those who dwell on the earth, those who have yet to bow their knee to the Lamb. Look what it says. They called on the mountains and the rocks, verse 16, fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the, land, the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? I think that's a, that's a question that's answered in chapter 7. Who can stand before the wrath of the Lamb? Those who are sealed. Those who have had their, their robes washed to the blood of the Lamb. Third point, the sand. The sand. Those who are standing before the Lord is not limited to ethnic Israel, but to all who trust in the Lamb who was slain. Look at verse 9 again. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne. Who can stand? And you see this multitude doing what? Standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. And the sevenfold blessing we see of the Lord, of His perfection, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might, be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? From where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. It answers that question in the end of chapter 6. Who can stand before the throne? Those who have been clothed in white robes after washing them in the blood of the Lamb. Salvation, it says, belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Do you have this salvation? 
We are all sinners and deserve God's wrath. And we know that. How can we stand before God knowing that our, our sin deserves wrath? A while back, I was talking to a non-Christian, talking to just a normal conversation, and the, the question came up about fear. What do you fear? And in a moment of honesty, just asked, well, what do you fear? And she said, I'm afraid to die. Why? Because I think we know. I think we know that when we're about to meet our, our maker, I think we, we, we know that we are not right with him. Deep down in our hearts, we know what we deserve. We know we need to be saved from our sin. So this is a, a beautiful passage that says salvation belongs to the one on the throne and to the Lamb. This means that salvation is only possible when it is given by God through the blood of the Lamb. God sent His Son into the, into the world to save us. Jesus died on the cross. As the Lamb was led to the slaughter, He opened out His mouth. We have turned to our own way. And the Lord, in His immense kindness, has laid on Jesus, the Good Shepherd, the iniquity of us all. And after Jesus died, He rose again. No one took His life. He says, I laid it down. The blood of the Lamb has brought salvation to all who would trust in Him. Beloved, salvation does not belong to the obedient, to the wise, to the compassionate. Salvation belongs to our God. And God gives this salvation when we have faith in the Lamb. Who can stand before the Lamb? Only those who know Him. Do you know the Lamb? Do you know the Lamb who was slain? Have you gone to God to deal with your sins? Have you washed your robes in the blood of the Lamb? Beloved, salvation is open to all. All who come to the Lamb. How comforting is it to know that we are sealed until the day of the Lord? That nothing, nothing can take us from the hand of God. The good work that He began in us, He will carry on to completion. We will all face persecution. We will face rejection, abandonment, scorn, and hatred because of our faith in Christ. The Bible says through many trials and tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. But we will not be lost. God will not lose not one of his blood-bought servants. Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. The reason why I think it's, so imp it's important for the interpretation of this passage that the, the seal are the church is to remind us that whatever happens in our life, we will not be lost. We will not have our faith be, be lost. We will not turn away from Christ if we have been redeemed by His blood. I mean, who, I love what Paul, how Paul ends Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? A lot like what you see in, 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 in the, uh, the seals. No, it says in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor the rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor death nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We need to hear that. 
when we are when we are faced with this crushing load of life, and we are tempted to turn away, we need to know that nothing can separate us from God's love in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, remember the context. The church of Asia in the first century was dealing with things far harsher than we will. We may lose our jobs because of our faith. That's a very real reality in America, in the secular West. But you're not going to lose your life yet for standing for Christ. And yet we know it's happened already. In America, when people have said, I believe in Jesus, and then they were killed. Usually by someone who was deranged, not sanctioned by the government. This church needed to hear this message, that they were safe. And what, what, what this passage ends with, this last point, we want to look at the shepherd. The shepherd. You know, are you weary today? Do you feel like your faith will, will fail, overwhelming with the things that you have been called to bear? Know this, those who know the good shepherd will be led out of the great tribulation by the good shepherd so they could stand before the throne of God and serve him day and night. Look at verses 15 through 17. The Bible says, Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun will not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. One of the things the Bible consistently does is that it says, look at all the things you've got going on in your life, and then look to glory. Look at all the trials, all your pain, all your agony, and then look to glory. Look to, the, to, our, to our king who has pleasure us forevermore at his, at his right hand. The good shepherd will lead us to the promised land. He has gone and prepared a place for us. A place where there shall be no more hunger or thirst. There shall be no more disasters or death. The lamb will shepherd us and he will guide us to the springs of the living water. And he will wipe away every tear from our eye. Beloved, we will face trials. This life is full of pain. But God has promised His presence in paradise. We can endure. We can press on. We can fight the good fight of faith. We can because we belong to the Lamb. And salvation belongs to Him. We will be spared from His wrath because we have been given grace. For we are not destined for wrath to attain salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. And He will keep us. So, beloved, we will stand before the Lord, not based on our own merits, but by the blood of the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. He knows his own, and his own know him. So, brothers and sisters, I pray that you would take joy today that God was our shepherd, is our shepherd, and will always be our shepherd. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are our shepherd. We thank you, God, that we have been washed to the blood of the Lamb. 
that one day, God, we will be clothed in white robes and you will take us to your presence. You will lead us to springs of living water. There will be no more hunger. There will be no more thirst. And dear God, you will wipe away every tear from our eye. God, we long for that day to be in your presence. Until then, God, we pray that you would give us hope and joy, knowing that we are destined, that we are sealed unto you, because salvation belongs to the one who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.